Hi, everybody. One more quick thing before we get started. We would love it if you could take a sec to think about what the Dinner Party download brings into your life. Maybe you're like Robert in Potomac, Maryland, and you like DPD's cultural, quote, buffet of artists, music, and stories that broaden your worldview and your taste. Perhaps you like having things to talk about with your friends or coworkers or grandkids like Cheryl in Surprise, Arizona, who enjoys telling our lame jokes to her eight-year-old grandson. Thanks, Cheryl. Sorry, grandson. We apologize. Or maybe you're feeling kind of like Noreen in Columbus, Ohio, who looks to DPD as a respite from the craziness of world events. Us too. No matter why you listen, thank you yes. for doing so and for telling us why DPD is a part of your life. It really means a lot to us. And because you value DPD, we'd appreciate it if you would help support us in whatever amount you're able. Your donation helps pay for the studios, the staff, and research materials that keep our show going. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org slash donate to chip in. And to thank you for your gift, we will give you a couple of Spotify playlists curated by myself and Brendan, yours truly. That's right. We want to help set the perfect mood for for your backyard parties, your summer barbecues, and luau's. Oh, the best. So you'll get one playlist from Rico and one from me, and then you can figure out which host has the best musical taste once and for all. Oh, and also host awesome parties. It's a win-win. Once again, contribute any amount only in the month of June, and you will get this special thank you sent directly to your email. The website, once again, dinnerpartydownload.org slash donate. Thanks. Now here's one of those icebreakers, Cheryl, and Cheryl's grandson. <laughs> Sorry again. All right, here's a joke, ladies and gentlemen. Uh... Horse walks into a bar, orders a pint of Guinness, and the bartender looks at him and says, Why the long face? I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan, and from APM American Public Media, this is the Dinner Party Download. One hour of food, culture, and humor to fuel your weekend conversations. You just got a joke from actor Saoirse Ronan. That'll help break the ice. Later, just in time for the Tony Awards, we will talk to her about her star turn in Arthur Miller's The Crucible on Broadway. Plus, we will get etiquette advice from movie star Cameron Diaz. Her latest book is out in paperback this week. And if that lineup sounds familiar, that's because this is an encore broadcast of a show we originally aired last summer. So cast your mind back to a time before Kofefe was a word. Ah. When is it any dinner party? We started with small talk. All week long, you've been hearing these headlines. The U.S. and Russia have agreed to extend a partial ceasefire to Aleppo. President Obama visits Flint, Michigan to get an update on the city's drinking water. Donald Trump is now solidly on his way to the Republican nomination. Now for a story you might not have heard, we are joined by Erin McCann. She is a staff editor at The New York Times. Erin. Hello. Hi. Hi. What story are you going to be talking about this weekend? (laughs) I have a story off of the uh, Washington Post out Mm. of Germany. Okay. A German streetcar system in Augsburg has installed flashing lights in the ground at two stations because they found that pedestrians weren't looking up from their phones to see if traffic was coming. And so they decided, hey, you're looking down. We'll just put the light in the ground for you. If you can't beat them, join them. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is also, this is like the the Billie Jean video come to life. Oh, (laughs) man. Does it look like that? Do we know what it looks like? Are there there photos? It looks, there there are photos. It's only like a red flashing light, the universal symbol for stop. Mm. Missed opportunity. I would expect better, actually. (laughs) But this is great because, look, New York, places where people walk, not you in L.A., Rico, but, uh, you know, people, this is a real problem. I Yes, I think. <laughs> the story references the, the Governor's Highway Safety Association that says in the United States, pedestrian fatalities jumped by 10% last year. It's the largest year-on-year increase since they started recording statistics on this. Oh wow. My God. So this might be happening in places outside Germany, the light system. Like the United States. I hope. I mean, I would appreciate it. I would have loved to have been in the lab when they were figuring this out. because, Like, what would have been other things they were trying? A police officer 
bopping people on the head saying look yeah. up and you actually have to like physically bop them because when people talk yeah. to me while I'm looking at my phone I'm like yeah yeah just a minute room yeah but maybe I there's... like to think like a robot or something kind of rolling up and down along the sidewalk saying halt halt yeah like halt. a little Roomba yes a little traffic, traffic Roomba. Roomba all right there we go well, work on it Google things are I was gonna say looking up in the world of things are but people aren't yeah people aren't oh, no. uh, Aaron McCann thanks so much for the small talk thank you and now time for cocktails and no more puns once again, we tell you something that happened in history, then give you a fitting drink to serve along with it. It's our famed history lesson with a garnish of booze. Tasty. First, the history part. Right around this time, back in 1926, a great American's high-flying career came to a sudden end. Michelle Philippi tells the tale. Bessie Coleman's life took a while to get off the ground. Part African-American, part Native American, she grew up in segregated, turn-of-the-century Texas. She couldn't afford to finish college and wound up in Chicago at age 23 doing manicures. That's where everything changed. Among the folks she met in the Windy City, soldiers returning from World War I. They told fantastic stories about flying aces like Eddie Rickenbacker. Eventually, she got a crazy idea to become an aviator. Now back then, just a handful of American women were licensed to fly, and the top American flying schools wouldn't even teach a woman of color. So Bessie took French lessons, and with the help of a wealthy patron, sailed to way more enlightened Paris, where she earned her pilot's license in 1921, two years before Amelia Earhart. When Bessie returned to the U.S., she was a sensation, the first black female pilot. The press fawned over her, Hollywood offered movie roles, and for years she traveled the country performing stunt-laden air shows for crowds of thousands. People called her Queen Bess. Bessie's goal was to start a flying school for people of color. But she never got the chance. During rehearsals for an air show, she crashed to her death in April 1926. Eighty years later, she was inducted into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. And today, in the Chicago, Oakland, Tampa, and Frankfurt airports, you'll find roads named after her. So that was the history. Now for the drink to serve along with it. We are speaking with Michael Mendoza. He is bartender at Flight 112 in Chicago, the city that launched Bessie into the stratosphere. And Michael, you heard the history. What drink did that inspire you to create? Well, Bessie's life inspired me to create Bessie's biplane, a variation of a paper airplane. That's a cocktail? That's a cocktail. Indeed it is. What's in the original? Uh, The original is going to be bourbon, Aperol, Amaro Nonino, and lemon juice. Wow, that doesn't sound papery at all. It sounds like a stiff drink right to your face. Sounds like a stiff drink, exactly. It sounds like a hard-charging one as well. What is the, your variation thereof? Uh, my variation is going to be using Still Moon White Lightning, and that is the largest uh, African-American-owned distillery in the United States, and they're based out of Texas. What is that? What kind of liquor is it? White Lightning uh, Moonshine. 
Now, what is moonshine? Uh, moonshine is unaged whiskey. Uh, whiskey, you're going to throw it into a oak barrel, and that's how it's going to get its distinctive, lovely brown color. Oh, I see. So, so moonshine is basically just white whiskey. White whiskey, exactly. All right. And it's kind of the jet fuel of the liquor world, so I guess that makes sense. <laughs> uh, what's next? Uh, we're going to be using, instead of Amaro Nonino, Suze, which is a French aperitif that is both bitter and sweet. And obviously the French connection, because Bessie went overseas to get her pilot's license. Exactly. She went over to Paris. All right. And uh, what else is in this thing? Uh, there's a bit of orange Creole shrub from Clement. Uh, and I tried to connect that with uh, part of her Seminole roots out of Florida. Florida, obvious orange connections. Oh, that's right. She was a Seminole Native American. That is correct. She was the first African-American and Native American woman to receive a pilot's license. And to take to the air. But, and, and they're based out of uh, Florida, that tribe, I guess. Indeed. Okay. And finally? Equal parts lemon juice brings it all back together. Cool. By the way, have you, so you're there in Chicago. Have you actually noticed Bessie's Road on the way to O'Hare? Actually, we are in Elmhurst, which is about uh, two, two and a half miles just south of O'Hare Airport. So, a nice sunny day, if you really feel like going for a walk, you can <laughs> get on up there and see Bessie Coleman drive and uh, watch the airplanes take off and land. All right, but see, I, I think we could find a better way to honor Bessie than to name a road after her there because that airport is a mess, man. It indeed is. <laughs> Flying in or out of it uh, is always an adventure and testing patience. Well, the adventure part she would like. Yeah. And Brendan, I should note, Michael also suggested we use, quote, our origami skills to make a little mm. airplane out of orange peel as a garnish for oh. that drink. That orange cute? peel origami, that is a niche skill right there. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> they only teach that on the top art schools. Mm. But folks, we do actually have a photo of that little garnishy thing. Check it out at dinnerpartydownload.org. Now, the guest list, in which an interesting person lists some interesting things. And today our guest is singer-songwriter Kevin Morby. His new album, Singing Saul, has earned raves, including Pitchfork's Best New Music Honor. Here's a piece of a song off that record. It's called Dorothy. Kevin to introduce himself and his lonely list. Hi, my name's Kevin Morby. I used to play for a band called Woods, and I also used to play in a band called The Babies. But I have since gone solo, and today I will be talking about other people, artists and otherwise, who have also gone solo. First artist that I thought of when I was thinking about people who have gone solo was Nick Cave. Nick Cave was in a band called The Birthday Party, and then they sort of self-destructed. So then Nick Cave went solo. His first record is just Nick Cave from Her to Eternity. And at that time, he called his live band Nick Cave and the Cavemen. Then he went on to call it The Bad Seeds, which we all know and love. You know, she lives in room 29. And that's one of those instances, it's not like he was the drummer of a band. He was always very much a front person, so I think probably a lot of people weren't that 
surprised that he went solo. But the risk to going solo is you're more vulnerable and the good times are going to be that much better when it's just your name and the bad times are going to be that much worse. I grew up in Kansas City, and uh, maybe the most famous thing about Kansas City is its barbecue. So in Kansas City, there's two barbecue spots that are like the most famous ones. There's Arthur Bryant's, and there's Gates Barbecue. Arthur Bryant's is the original, and one of his cooks went off with another family to start Gates. So there's this big rivalry of that, because it's kind of like Arthur Bryant's protege went off to do this other thing. I prefer the OG Arthur Bryant's. That's what I prefer. The Gates, Gates is very good. But I mean, the original is always a little bit more fun, you know? The original, that's always the most interesting and sort of tells the bigger story. And it kind of explains everything that spawns from that. My next example of someone who broke away from a group and went solo is Aziz Ansari. I first found out about him from, what was that show called? Oh, The Human Giant. The Human Giant was a sketch comedy show that aired on MTV in the mid-2000s. It starred Aziz, and it had Rob Hubel and Paul Shear. One of my favorite sketches from The Human Giant that's always stuck with me has been uh, the three of them are out camping or something. They go back to a car. They find an abandoned car or something like that. There's a lot of money in it, and they uh, sort of end up killing each other over the money. There's like $600,000 in here. No way. <laughs> We're going to be rich, man. I don't know, guys. It's half a million dollars would tear our friendship apart. Half a million? What happened to the other hundred thousand? Yeah, you trying to screw us out of our share? Take a little off the top. Oh! What the f man? How could you do that to him? And the human giant, you know, Aziza's first show is a great example of a group kind of all doing a thing for the first time together. But I think that people just naturally sort of get together when they're younger, not like out of like one hundred percent fear. But, um, you know, you have someone's back and they have yours. It's not as scary to go out onto a stage. And then when Master of None came out, I was genuinely very, very excited that he had his own show. You know, he's a food guy. I would take him to Arthur Bryant. I would take Aziz Ansari to Arthur Bryant's. The guest list from band member turned one-man band Kevin Morby. Since we taped that segment last summer, he's put out a new album, City Music, and he's touring the U.S. and Europe all summer. All right. Coming up, Saoirse Ronan, Oscar-nominated star of the movie Brooklyn, gets schooled about the Bronx. And comedian Solomon Giorgio tells a sobering tale when this encore episode of the Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to the Dinner Party Download, the culture show that helps you win your dinner party. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. We should let you know that this is an encore broadcast of a show we first aired last May, and it's well worth another listen. Later movie star Cameron Diaz gives us etiquette advice. But first, let's meet our guest of honor. All right, and that'd be Saoirse Ronan. At the ripe old age of 12, she earned an Oscar nomination for her performance in the movie Atonement. She also played the titular teenage assassin in Hannah, appeared in Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel, and starred in the sleeper hit Brooklyn, for which she was up for another Oscar. When I spoke with her last summer, she was on Broadway playing Abigail Williams in Arthur Miller's The Crucible, her first stage role. When we met, I asked how she made the adjustment from movie sets 
to treading the boards. I was shocked when we turned up on day one and I sort of, it felt like the first day of school for me. I didn't, I didn't yeah. know, you know, the, the meetings that we had to have beforehand and I had no idea, as silly as it sounds, that you, you know, you should bring in your own water bottle when you rehearse. <laughs> because in film, there's always like a fridge full of there's water a, there's there. A catering for you. truck, yes. <laughs> um, but it was silly things like that. And so I was kind of getting used to this new uh, way of doing things. And I was quite shocked that 10 minutes after we turned up, we were straight into the first act. Yeah. And we just kept going then for a month and a half until we put it on stage. Why Why do people do this? Because you are in movies. You've been nominated for a couple Academy Awards. What is the appeal of... I mean, this is it's really hard work being in a play. Yeah, that's kind of the appeal, <laughs> and it's really scary. But it's that's appealing? Really... Like, to me, it seems like napping for five <laughs> months between movies would be ideal. Well, that's the thing, is that I think that's why you do it as well, because I am... The way I work, I don't like to go from one film to the next. Mm-hmm. Straight away, um, although I think it might be this year, but uh, to do a play, I knew it was going to sharpen me up big time just because the discipline that you need to do Mm -hmm. it and the stamina that you need to kind of keep it going for that long is is so much greater Mm -hmm. in a way um, than film. And I think they both, I would never ever put one down over the other. I think they both offer you different things and the focus that you need for both things is quite, different I think with film it's a lot more introverted it's a lot everything is more nuanced and I really love that and I've grown up with that and yeah. I like working in that way but to go on stage and kind of use your body more and kind of really incorporate physicality into what you're doing and use your this is the thing so my voice is gone yeah. that, that's probably that has been the biggest shift between film and theatre is that you're using your voice in a completely different way. You have way. to project. You have to project and you're... Doing it day in, day out. Yeah, and sometimes you're doing it twice a day and you're doing it six days a week. Speaking of voices, uh, before so before this, you were in Brooklyn, and I don't mean you weren't buying pour-over coffees and condominiums. You were actually in a movie called Brooklyn about immigrants. Yeah. It's about an Irish immigrant. You were born in the Bronx but grew up in Ireland, and I read that you decided not to use your accent. Like your actual right. accent in no. that part. Well, I couldn't because she's from a different place. But I wouldn't have. Well, that's the point, is that there, there's so many films that are made where people go, yeah, but no one's going to know. I mean, as long as, you know, people outside of Ireland don't realise that it's a different accent, then... Yeah. And sometimes you can do that. Sometimes you can make an accent more kind of generic and you need, obviously, you need an international audience to be able to understand mm-hmm. what you're saying. But um, I grew up 20 minutes away from Enniscorthy, where Ailish is from, where my character Your was term, from. Yeah. Um, Wait, isn't that pretty close? How, how do you not have is, the same but, accent? But I, well, I've never, it's mad. <laughs> they make fun of me for it at home. I've, I have quite a strong Dublin accent. Ah. Um, and I've never really lived in Dublin. <laughs> I've lived, I lived there for about a year. And, mm. I, and now I live there. I'm back and forth between yeah. New York and Dublin yeah. and consider that home. But my whole family are from Dublin and my mum and dad are dubs. And even when I was in the Bronx and we I learned how to speak, you know. Mm-hmm. We called the boogie down. The boogie, you call it the what? It used to be called the boogie down in the 80s. The Bronx? Yeah, the Bronx. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah, it's true. KRS-One. Cool, look at it. I'll send you some links afterwards. Okay. Yeah. Boogie cool. Down Productions was a hip hop group. From does that Bronx. does that make me cool then that I'm from? Oh yeah, you could leverage it. Down. We could talk about how you could <laughs> leverage. <laughs> we, we could, could, we really could change this. your Wikipedia page together after this <laughs> to make you seem tougher. 
Um, Maybe I could have my own Instagram page that's just about how straight I am. Streets of the Bronx. <laughs> but also, Sir, just search on random streets in the Bronx. <laughs> there's also bougie parts of the Bronx, but that would be... The, I wouldn't be from that'd there. That'd be the bougie down. I was definitely from, like, the poor Irish part. Your parents were actors, right? My my dad is an actor. Okay. My mom is a normal person. <laughs> She's not... So that means you're not a normal person? I'm. I think I'm somewhere in between the two. What's abnormal about being an actor? Um, I think you have to be very in touch with your emotional side, and I think for a lot of people, it's easier to maybe repress that or kind mm. of walk by it and carry on with your everyday life. The schedule is ridiculous. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a not in a bad way, but you know, you go away for two, three months, and you're. You could be on location in mm-hmm. a forest in Germany somewhere or up a mountain in Bulgaria. And then at the end of that really kind of intense few months, you go back home and it's over. And mm. that is that is a very strange um, aspect of the job, I think. You're talking about being an actor and having being in touch with your emotions. You know, you're someone who can is in a unique position to speak to this. I was thinking about child actors. You know, when you say child actors in America, we think like, oh, they all turn into murdering crackheads. Yeah. So look out. I'm okay. glad I have you in this window before you turn into Put the a menace away, to society. But you have to be in touch with your emotions, and yet there's so many emotions you haven't felt yet when you're, when you're 10 years old, right. 13 years old. You know, romantic love, student loan debt. You know, you don't have to yeah, worry about that. not when you're 10. So how do you get into, how do you do that? Well, I mean, usually you don't have to portray anything like that when you're that age. But I know what you mean. I think even the roles that I played when I was younger, they were emotionally very kind of mature. Mm -hmm. And I think when you're a kid, in a way, it's not necessarily easier to do it, but you rely so much on your instinct Mm -hmm. and so much on just what feels right Mm -hmm. that there's no kind of inhibitions at all and there's Mm. nothing that sort of... You don't question anything. You just kind of go with it. There's it's no more fear. Like, it's more like play in a, in a sense. You're yeah. just like, I'm going to be this person. I think, yeah, I think we kind of take kids for granted. I mean, I really, I feel like emotionally speaking, I think kids are the most intelligent ones emotionally out of all of us mm. because they're so incredibly pure and haven't had to deal with any of that crap yet that, yeah. that you mentioned. And because of that, actually, I mean, I mean, basically we all feel sadness, happiness, Anger, jealousy, and then yeah. there's sort of branches, things branch off from, from those kind of core emotions. Yeah. But kids have that. Well, hopefully you haven't lost access to those emotions because you might need them for two standard questions. And the first one is, what question are you tired of being asked at dinner parties? Well, Brendan, I think <laughs> we all know the only answer could ever be. I know. How do you pronounce your name? I was going to do an American accent, but I didn't. I stopped uh-huh. myself. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm asked about my name an awful lot. It um, is. I think it's galling. I had to, I've watched a lot of interviews with you to prepare for this. Yeah. And every single interview begins with a little game about your name. About my name. About your name. We're teaching the world kind of one chat show at a time. That's right. I think it started... Um, because I've been saying it for years, mm. obviously. Like, whenever yeah. I've had to well, do it's your press, name. it's my name. So I say it most days. Um, even if there's no one around. Mm. And so I've done press in the past and really tried to drive a home that yeah. this is how you pronounce it. Yeah. You know? right. So it's not it's not as frequent now. Yeah. But the name question is what I get asked the most. And I didn't ask you. And you didn't ask me. Thank you. But you knew I was gonna say it though. Maybe. 
But I also, I also didn't say your name, so there we go. You've actually, yeah. I haven't said it yet. You haven't. Are maybe you I'll say it? maybe I'll say it for the end. I've of the said interview. your name once, Brandon, <clears throat> twice. Thank you for saying my name correctly. <laughs> um, okay, so our other question is: <sighs> tell us something we don't know, something you haven't shared in interviews about me, or just it could be about you, or anything. it could be an interesting fact about the world. This is such a Catholic Irish thing to say. Yeah, well. But the reason why here. the shamrock is our sort of symbol mm. is because when St. Patrick, who was actually, we think he was Welsh, came over and introduced Christianity to Ireland, mm. in order to teach the pagans the Holy Trinity, he used a shamrock to do it because it's got three leaves. Right. Is that true? That's true. What about the fourth leaf? Like, That's what does a that clover. Mean? That's different to a shamrock. They're not the same thing, which no. just has different sized leaves? They're probably cousins or something, but they're not. Hmm. They're not the same thing. All right. So Shamrock only has three leaves, mm-hmm. and apparently he used to use that. So they say. Who's, who are they? Paddy, you them. That? You know them. <laughs> Saoirse Ronan, who's now gone from the live stage to the small screen. She popped up last month as the eponymous Galway girl in pop star Ed Sheeran's latest video. Check that out. It's pretty delightful. And then surf over to our website where you can hear more of her chat with Brendan. Saoirse talked about kissing Brad Pitt as a baby and about being allergic to potatoes. Remember, she's Irish, everybody. Oh, my gosh. That's at dinnerpartydownload.org. And now, time to eavesdrop. The LA Weekly spotlighted Solomon Giorgio as one of their People of 2016. The comedian has been featured on Conan, Last Call with Carson Daly, and Viceland's comedy documentary series Flophouse. Today we overhear a tale from his youth. It was a winter of 1998. I was a 16-year-old high school junior slash subway employee living in a northern Seattle suburb called Lake Forest Park, cleverly named for its main three geographical features, a lake, a forest, and a park. At the time, I was an overachieving student. I spent every waking moment focusing on my studies so I could follow a detailed plan my Ethiopian immigrant parents laid out for me. Go to a good college, become a successful doctor, marry an Ethiopian woman, and produce a flock of children. I was okay with this plan until my 17th birthday, the year my parents forgot my birthday. Now, I'm I'm one of seven children, so it shouldn't have been a big deal, but I was born on Christmas Day. The whole world already made me feel invisible on my birthday because of some Middle Eastern wizard that wasn't even born on that day. My parents forgetting that they produce a child on a major holiday was unforgivable. I knew I was gay at that point, but I was willing to hide it forever just to follow the plan. But screw the plan. It was time for me to become a rich and famous openly homosexual man, and the first step was to run away to Los Angeles, California. Over the course of the next four months, I obtained my school transcripts, put in my notice to Subway, extorted $850 from my mother's bank account, and obtained a Greyhound bus ticket. And then one spring night, while my father was fast asleep and my mother was working late at her second job, I left a runaway note on my pillow and took the biggest risk of my life. 
I spent five months in Los Angeles as a runaway teen. The first month was spent in a hostel in Hollywood. During that time, I went to my first bar, did my first stand-up comedy set, got booed at my first stand-up comedy set, had my groceries stolen by a former member of a rock band, and I even went to watch The Mummy 2 with Brendan Fraser's Estranged Brother. By the end of that month, I was out of money, so I needed to find a new place to stay. And that's when I went to my first shelter for runaway teens. They uh, kicked me out after three weeks because I refused to uh, contact my parents and go back home. And that's when I went into another shelter. But unfortunately, I couldn't stay in that shelter forever. And that's when my anxiety kicked in pretty hard. I actually locked myself in a bathroom with a pair of blunt scissors cutting my own hair and eyebrows just to escape from myself. This behavior actually got me kicked out of the shelter and an indefinite stay in a children's mental hospital. I was at my lowest point. I called my mother and she began to cry. Neither of my parents knew where I was because they're both illiterate. The runaway note I left on my pillow went unread, so I pretty much just left garbage on that pillow for them. My father flew down to Los Angeles and signed uh, my release papers from the mental hospital. I ran to my father and I gave him a hug. We're both crying and Immediately, he starts making fun of my awful haircut. (laughs) Then I knew I was home. I knew now that if my parents could handle me running away, the least I can give them back is my honesty. So I told my parents and practically anyone within a 10-mile radius of Lake Forest Park that I was the gayest person alive. And you know what? I learned from that moment that life isn't about following concrete plans. And I think my parents also caught wind of that too. And from that point on, they never forgot the day I was born. Solomon Giorgio, you can catch his stand-up around Los Angeles or this weekend at the ATX Festival in Austin, Texas. All right, we're going to take a quick break, but in just a minute, you'll hear actress Cameron Diaz fight for your right to bring beer to a party. Thanks, Cameron. The Dinner Party Download continues. Welcome back to The Dinner Party Download, the show that gives you an edge in your weekend conversations. I'm Rico Galliano. I'm Brendan Francis Noonan. In a few minutes, the director of a new documentary about David Hockney stops by to paint a portrait of an artist as a grown man. Uh But first, time for our weekly etiquette lesson. All right, each week you send us your questions about how to behave, and here to answer them this time is Golden Globe-nominated actor and author Cameron Diaz. Among her many hit movies, There's Something About Mary, Being John Malkovich, and the Charlie's Angels franchise. She has just recently published her second book called The Longevity Book, and Cameron, welcome. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. We are so happy to have you here. So... You describe your new book as a look at, quote, how the female body ages and what we can all do to age better. 
And I think we all know exercise and eating right would help us. But you visited labs and universities (laughs) studying aging. There is like way more cellular biology in this book than we expected. Well, that's the cool thing about it is that aging happens on a cellular level and we don't even think of it that way. We just kind of look at the exterior, the wrinkles and the sagging. And I did get to study it with and learn from great gerontologists and geroscientists that uh, are studying it, you know, at the cellular level. So are you say, are you saying my cells have crow's feet too? Because that <laughs> they is do. Really <laughs> yes, no. exactly. In that's fact, horrifying. that's exactly. Maybe they look ruggedly <laughs> handsome. Well, men men's crow's feet, of course, are celebrated. So it's an awesome thing. Congratulations, your cells <laughs> yeah. have crow's you. feet. <laughs> we'll get into that in a bit. But what what surprised you the most about researching all of this? Maybe something counterintuitive you learned. That... Well, you know, it's a funny thing because we were like, okay, my writing part partner, Sandra, and I, we thought we're going to discover some science to tell us how we're going to be able to reverse um, (laughs) aging. And really, basically, what it came down to was all the things that everybody's always told us, (laughs) which was Mm. eat well, move your body, good night's sleep, stress relief, Mm -hmm. and loving, meaningful, connected relationships. And we were like, oh, really? That's it? That's all there is, really? This book (laughs) is actually a pamphlet. Exactly. (laughs) You know? Exactly. But what was really interesting is how all of those five pillars affect you on a cellular level, how it actually does change your cells, as well as finding out that male and female cells are different. We metabolize differently. Our cells take in um, and metabolize very significantly. Medicine, drugs differently than men's. Our organs are different. Our hearts are smaller. Our arteries are a little bit finer and lacier, which makes it harder to detect heart disease in a woman. Oh, oh, yeah. It's so all of these differences in men and women actually really add up for the well-being of a woman, When especially since science has historically studied anything medical related on men. So it's just in the 1990s that we discovered that females were made up cellularly different than men. Mm. And unfortunately, I think those cells get paid less than the average male cell. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. so that, that's a bummer. Dang it. Actually, <laughs> actually, speaking of which. Yeah, you say specifically in the introduction that this is not an anti-aging book. You kind of encourage people to embrace their age. Absolutely. But you work in an industry where reporters still ask female actors if they're worried about getting older, where women over 40 get fewer roles all things that discourage women from embracing their age. How do you reconcile these two things? Well, I write a book about aging. (laughs) (laughs) Well done. I mean, it's a little extreme, but uh, my opinion, instead of saying, that's not fair, I just went, hey, you know what? There's over 30 million women between the ages of 35 and 50 Mm. in America. Those are a lot of voices. And currently, we're all speaking the language of society that we've been raised with, which is aging is ugly. You know, we should be shamed for it or punished for it. And what I'm asking women to do is to embrace it and say, you know what, it's, I'm okay with aging. I will, I'm going to embrace it because if I'm lucky, I'll get to be older a lot longer than I was ever young. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that was very surprising was learning that 150 years ago, life expectancy was 40. So I would have been kaput three years ago. Oh, no. <laughs> I would have been, when those journalists asked me if I was afraid to turn 40, I would have been like, oh, yes, I am terrified of turning 40. That's a very existential question. You know, yeah. So I get another 40 years, hopefully, knock on wood, that I get to celebrate life instead of be, you know, terrified of it. But I think what we're getting at is that it's hard to tell people 
to embrace that when, for instance, in the case of uh, an actress, it symbolizes the end of your career. Absolutely. Well, I mean, there's a lot of actresses in uh, Hollywood who do movies that are totally appropriate for their age and they get nominated for Oscars every year. So <laughs> you yeah. Know, yeah. they're uh, celebrating actresses that have been around in this business for 30 years who are continuing to do amazing work. But I think it's that sweet spot in the middle where I'm at, where I'm not young anymore, but I'm not quite, you know, I'm not 20 years older either. Uh, so uh, people are trying to figure out what to do with me. Yeah, you're not a grand dame yet. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's what's hard for a lot of women my age. You know, you're just sort of saying goodbye to what you understood you were for so long. You were young. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's a hard thing to reconcile as you come up on it. But that's another thing that I ask for with the book is to know what is ahead of you. You know, when you're a young girl, when you're 12, 13 years old, people tell you you're going to start menstruating, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. and they talk you through mm -hmm. it. Everybody around you mm -hmm. says, this is what's going to happen. So you don't end up having like a carry moment in the shower at school, <laughs> you know, but we don't have that conversation as we get older. Our mothers don't sit us down and go, by the way, honey, one day you're going to stop menstruating and this is what you have to look uh. forward to. So it's the mindset. How do we embrace this? Uh, inevitable, and that helps carry us through to, you know, do it a little bit more gracefully. Right on. Well, our listeners have written in for uh, advice on the subject of aging and plenty of other topics. Are you ready for these? Fantastic. Sure. All right. All right. Our first comes from Julia in South Pasadena, California. My 60-something mom sometimes gets absorbed in iPhone games for hours, Rock which on. she thinks is good for her mental acuity, but I think is a huge distraction. How should I handle the next time she's been candy crushing for a while? Or... Would you just let her have her fun? Interesting. Interessante. Well, um, a couple of things. Candy Crush is great, fun. It is a, a distraction. I am addicted. Mental acuity is another question because like anything with the brain, you build a network from doing one thing over and over again. But if that's all you're doing, you're not really, yeah. you're not yeah. spreading it out. She needs to engage in different, I would either offer her other kinds of games and maybe ones that are actually geared towards uh, mm -hmm. helping the brain and, or I would just put her on a treadmill while she does candy crush. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Crush them calories. All right. Here's something from Alvaro in the Bay Area. I am Mexican-American with fair hair and complexion and get told a lot that I, quote, don't look Mexican. I could expose their ignorance, but I need a polite way to respond. Please hmm. help. I guess, you know, I, I know the feeling uh, being Hispanic myself yep. and, and not looking Hispanic. Yeah, sure. And I wish that I was able to speak Spanish when I was a kid because I always thought that would just show people that would really so i would just if you speak spanish i would just speak spanish to that person yeah. and blow their minds <laughs> or uh -huh. you could do like me and just you know make a pot of black beans and bring it to people's houses and say see i'm cuban <laughs> yeah. there's no way i can fake this but exactly. what should if he can speak spanish what should he say in spanish it's uh -huh. like, how dare you? Uh, oh, interesting. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I would have to ask that person to prove to me that they were a human being. Ah, <laughs> oh, oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah. All right. Show me some blood. Exactly. There you are. Uh, this one comes from Anne via Facebook. Anne writes, I have a group of friends who meet frequently for potlucks and everyone brings great food except for one dude. He brews beer to share. I guess he holds his beer in such high regard that he can't bring himself to make some spinach dip. <laughs> so how do you ask someone to start pitching in or even maybe gasp, uninvite them from the group? 
Whoa. I'm guessing she doesn't like beer. <laughs> yeah, that's a- <laughs> I, I, I would take I would take a poll to all the other people that come to the potluck and ask mm-hmm. them if they enjoy his beer. Yeah. And if everybody else is down for the beer, leave it alone. But if everybody was like, that beer, you know, <laughs> mm. stinks, it's, then I yeah. would say to him, hey, you know what's really great with beer? Wings. <laughs> but I don't get it. it seems bring like, some hot wings. It, it seems like making beer is harder than making spinach dip and more expensive. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like Anne just doesn't like this person. I agree. I'm not mad at anybody who brings home brewed beer. Yeah. So, Anne, I think you need to drink a glass of this beer, look in the mirror, and ask yourself, what is my real problem here? <laughs> What's really going on? Or one more thing. She can just have him listen to this episode, and he'll get the Yes. There we go. He'll get the idea. We He's always like, encourage hey. that. We consider this show our homebrew beer of radio yeah, yeah. That's that we bring everywhere. You don't want to invite us to a dinner party. We just play our show. <laughs> so, Cameron Diaz... Thank you so much for telling our audience how to behave. Oh, you know, I'm, I actually have the worst etiquette ever. So <laughs> that was my effort at being proper. Cameron Diaz, her new book is called The Longevity Book, The Science of Aging, the Biology of Strength, and the Privilege of Time. It definitely offers more than a pamphlet's worth of information. That's right. And folks, if you've got a book-length list of etiquette questions you want answered, please pare them down to just one or two and send them to us. Yes. We'll find someone excellent to answer them. Just head to dinnerpartydownload.org and click contact. And now, time for Chattering Class, in which we're schooled by an expert in some party-worthy topic. Today's subject, David Hockney, one of the most influential artists of the 20th century, and our teacher is Randall Wright. Yes, he's directed a new eponymous documentary about the artist. In it, he explores the life of the man behind those iconic paintings of swimming pools and the good life of Los Angeles. Mm. The film's made up of interviews with Hockney himself, images from his career, and footage from Hockney's never-before-seen home movies. When I met with Wright, I asked him what it was like to work closely with his subject. One of the moments when I realized quite, you know, what an extraordinary man he was, was we were in London and and he bent down, picked up a little flower um, and he held it one hand with a thick smouldering camel cigarette, other hand with a little flower. <laughs> and he stood there motionless, just staring at this flower and then turned around to me and said, I haven't seen that shade of blue for years. <laughs> <laughs> that it was it was an amazing moment because he genuinely hadn't seen it for years that he looks so carefully at blue that he appreciates a blue that turns up only every so often so he he's wanting to be distracted by beauty which yeah. may indicate there's there's trouble somewhere else in his mind and he wants something else but but it's just a sort of delightful way to live your documentary it begins with alternating shots of Bradford, England, and Los Angeles, California. Um, yeah. For people who haven't seen the movie, what what did these two cities mean to Hockney's psyche, and and how did they influence his aesthetic? Well, <clears throat> I think they're both incredibly uh, interesting and exciting places to David. That, that he's born in Bradford. Bradford then was an amazing place. Actually, it had an incredible library, gallery. That was a very kind of civilized place. On the other hand, it was a tough place, a kind of narrow-minded place, perhaps. It was a place where you couldn't be gay. It was a place where you couldn't uh, easily do modern arts. Mm. And so it was a place to escape from. So he escaped to London. And then this Vindicate is suddenly there in British society and everybody adores him. 
He's one of those artists who became, you know, a success like a beetle. He was he was in every colour magazine and right from the beginning people were paying relatively, you know, high sums for his, his work. Yeah. Then what Hockney did was he kept more than one place going. He left himself with options. He loved his family, wanted to go back to, to Yorkshire. He also had a studio in London, by the way, and he had a home studio in Los Angeles. And essentially, the freedoms that Los Angeles offered him were the ones that became a catalyst for his greatest achievements. Among them, his paintings of Los Angeles swimming pools, uh, the most famous of which is uh, A Bigger Splash, which shows this kind of poppy depiction of a splash of water coming out of a pool near a diving board. And there's this pink modern house and a blue sky. Um, I know this is hard to do for radio, but can you try to describe uh, the defining traits of a Hockney painting? Um, In David's art, if you go back and look at The Bigger Splash, I think there are two things at work very often. One is the representation of the surface of things, the beautiful surface, the possibility that you could dive into the pool that someone's already dived in. It's a beautiful day. It's, It's a warm day. But at the same time, the person who's dived in the water will never come to the surface. Um, You don't see the body, you see uh, the displaced water. And there's a kind of strange detachment in the work. You know, the the possibility, the vision is at one remove. And I think if you look at a lot of David's work, it has that quality the sense of detachment is a very genuine part of the power of those pictures. He is somebody who has always, I think, looked for a kind of an ideal life. And he was very attracted to the artist's life. He's always searching for this. But if you look very carefully at the work, there's, there's a sort of feeling underneath the surface that he's not actually finding it. And the reason he keeps looking for it is that he refuses to, to, to give in. You know, he will... Um, enjoy what life offers. So you've done a couple other documentaries uh, on Hockney. You did a documentary with Hockney before. Uh, what about him captures your imagination? Why David Hockney? You know, I've been influenced by David for a large part of my life. Since 1976, I was, I was whatever, I was 14 or something. Um, I hope I'm not... <laughs> I, I hope I, I wasn't older. Anyway, in 1976, <laughs> uh, there was a book appeared on our bookshelves, which is Hockney on Hockney. And mm-hmm. it was mind blowing because here was someone who could, you know, who could draw. It's a very, very rare skill, and it it may be there are lots of other fantastic ways of making art. But in a way, if you make your body an amazing machine to record what you see and what you feel at the same time, then you're you're able to 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 express ordinary experience in a very, very special way. And David does that, and, and, and in that is a kind of faith that, 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 that life is actually out there. You can, you can touch it, you can, you can see it, you can touch it, you can smell it, you can, you can enjoy life, it's there. Yeah. And I think he was very consciously trying to show us what the possibility in life is. I think a lot of his art is about the possibility of love, the possibility that we don't have to be um, cynics, you know, we don't have to waste our time belonging to a group against another group you know that we can there's ways of drawing people together anyway i hope this doesn't mean i'm i'm hopelessly romantic <laughs> myself about <laughs> it all but uh, i i do think it's true Ray. 
Randall Wright. His new documentary is called Hockney. And you can see a Hockney exhibit at the Met starting this November. All right. And folks, that's the Dinner Party download for this week. But fear not, our podcast is always available on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen digitally. There you will find past shows as well as bonus episodes where you'll hear extended conversations with the likes of Get Out director Jordan Peele. So hop to it. Meanwhile, we want you to know that this show would not be possible without our producer Jackson Musker, Mm. our associate producers James Kim and Krista Ripple, our associate digital producer Christina Lopez, intern Emerald Douglas, and engineering help from Ben Tolliday. And now, before we leave you, it's time for One for the Road, a song to listen to on your way to or returning from this week's dinner parties. And this week it comes from Idris Akamur, who is a multi-instrumentalist, a tap dancer, an actor, and a former arts envoy for the U.S. State Department. So he's done everything, basically. Here's a track called Rhapsody in Berlin. Bon appétit. Thanks for attending the Dinner Party Download. I'm Brendan Francis Newnham. And I'm just completing the Marmalade Meadow with 13 lollipop hammers. Okay, Jackson, I think we got to finally do this Candy Crush intervention. All right, I'm coming in. What? I know there's a lot of chocolate spawners. I'm just going to dust through those with some wrap candy combinations. It's cool, man. Stay away from me. Okay, hold him down. Nope. Give me back my phone. He's biting me.